There's two ends possible for America. One is the Athenian end, where we descend into some sort of crazy mob rule, or you get something like January 6th, but with a charismatic person who can actually orchestrate a takeover of the power structure of this country. Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Bradford MacArthur. We're speaking with Nick Hilaris today. He's the founder of Metro's Capital. It's a large real estate investment firm with a stellar 10-year track record based in LA. Nick not only is super deep in the real estate world, he's also incredibly curious about macroeconomics, but also American citizenry. What does it mean to be an American today? Where has America gone wrong? But more importantly, what he really grapples with is where is America right? and how can we do better? And so that's where we dive in today. It's a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it too. Great, Nick. Well, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks, Bradford. I'm excited to be here. Um, interested in this topic. It's something I've been studying kind of on my own for years. And it's nice to know that there's a bunch of people who are interested in this. And it's an honor to be included. You know, I've been paying attention to the podcast and you had such incredible guests and people that I've followed over the years. Uh, and learned a lot from. So it's nice to kind of be in, in the same group as, as those individuals. Oh, well, thank you. Much appreciated. Yeah. So we were we were speaking off camera a bit um, two weeks ago now, getting ready for this. And, you know, I reached out to you because I was fascinated. Whenever there's a, a joining of someone who's in, interested in macroeconomics and housing and real estate, because real estate is such a big part of the economy, but then when someone's able to pull back and look through a lens of macroeconomics with that, that's a powerful, that's a powerful perspective. But as we started talking, you were bringing in all these other elements I didn't even imagine. And so I can't wait to dive in. And so maybe first you sent me over some of your work earlier, your, um, your monthly newsletter called Profit. And in one of them, you mentioned, I'm probably going to botch names. So I'm going to need your assistance here. Polybus? Polybus? Oh, Polybius. Yeah. Polybius. Yes. And so there's the three stages of government and a bit of this repeating cycle. And so maybe that's a good place to start to really just peel out, step back and maybe walk us through some of those cycles. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the, the, I got interested in ancient history, probably because my father's from Greece. And so when you're, when you're Greek, like you, you really, you dig deep into your culture. It's kind of a, it's a big deal. Yeah. yeah. And so in my twenties, I started, you know, I, I didn't really even study this in school, but I started reading all this stuff on my own and, and became increasingly more interested in it over the years. And I, I got, I let, that led me all the way actually up to the founders because the founders of our country were incredibly hmm. interested in the ancient world. And, and for example, if you were to read like Madison, I highly recommend this actually for people to do to go back. Madison took notes of the Constitutional Convention, and you can buy you can buy you know versions of these notes. They're hand, they were handwritten notes that now you can you know get get a book and look at them. And what's apparent when you read these notes is that the founders were highly educated on the ancient world, and they were very interested in both the experiences of Athens and the Roman Republic and learned a lot from them and designed the American system with what they perceived to be the lessons of, of those two democracies, both of which failed and, and failed for different reasons. And Polybius, you know, taking it to your question, so Polybius is a really fascinating character. He was uh, Greek, 
but he ended up in Rome and he ended up as sort of like the tutor to the grandson of Scipio Africanus. So this is a, a guy who ended up, he was the adopted grandson, but that was very common in Roman, Roman times. And mm. he's with, he, he's like with Scipio Africanus, the younger, as they're tearing Carthage to the ground. You know, like he's just, he's in his inner circle, um, advising him and teaching him and whatever he was doing. But he, he has this fascinating life experience and he, he wrote this history and he was looking through the ancient world and trying to, you know, not, not only record the events, but also have some broader lessons. And, and one of his theories is that there's this sort of natural cyclical evolution of the forms of government. So you start hmm. off with a monarchy and that can turn into an aristocracy that can turn into a democracy and then it can fall apart and come right back to monarchy, which is essentially what happened, you know, and that's the Roman evolution. And, you know, he, he wrote about it in the sense that it was like a natural law. Like this was, it was just a matter of time before these, these forms of government would change. Um, it's worth huh. Interesting. So, so he's saying if you're monarchy, you, you, have to go to aristocracy next or you could just be monarchy and that's your thing and you devolve but if you're going to change the most likely next form is aristocracy and so on and so on yeah if i if i remember right i think it's it's more like monarchy tends towards tyranny and then tyranny mm. tends towards some sort of change so you you can you can evolve from a tyranny into the other form you could evolve into a, a good form like an aristocracy like early Rome, for example, or you could evolve into a democracy situation. But it, it's the response. It's like in, in Polybius's framework, it's the response to the, the problem of the form of government that produces mm. the conditions for the next form of government. So people get upset with tyranny and they, they, want, it, they want another answer. They want something that's yeah. more inclusive. It seems to be fairer. And so they, they move towards a new system. The, the grass is always greener. So it's almost like each form has its benefits, but it has its challenges. And so as you mature in this one form, you eventually, you know what? These things are becoming more and more um, unpalpable. Maybe we could change. And then you're kind of like catapulted into the next phase or something. Exactly. And like, you know, the, in the ancient world, Athens was an example of one that kind of got to the point where it was a functioning democracy. They had a golden age of a, of a real, like, radical kind of democratic government for that era, and they descended into mob rule. You know, that's the sort of the antithesis of a good democracy is mob rule. And, and Rome, Rome's mm-hmm. evolution was slightly different where it went, it went from um, an aristocracy to a republic to a dictatorship. Well, I definitely find it interesting how... It seems like it's, I don't know how to put words in this, but there's some kind of subconscious feeling that America just is, it will always be. And that might just be a human thing, is wherever you are, it just feels like, well, this is just going to traject in a, in a similar path into the future. Kind of that myth of progress, that idea of American except, exceptionalism, all these things. And when January 6th happened... Before that, there was a lot of signs. And we can get into the nitty-gritty details of Trump was signaling these kinds of things. He's not going to 
he's not going to accept a loss. He'll be battling that. And so, you know, staying out of the nitty gritty, there was a lot of signs that things were happening in America. And it certainly feels like perhaps once January 6th happened, that was a bit of a wake up call for people who weren't really thinking about these things of, you know what? We don't necessarily have to stay in this the this style of governance that we have currently. We we can change. America can change. And and then since then it feels like that feeling has like slipped into the backseat a little bit. Do you do you see that date as any significance or just this process that America maybe just to you, like where's your finger on this pulse? Where are we in this cycle? Are we, can we escape from this cycle? It sounds like maybe not, but. Yeah, that's a really, that's a great question. And something I've been thinking about a lot. I, I wrote a piece in the, in the newsletter about January 6th. I think it's an important date in history. I think whatever your politics are, whether you agree with the, the policies that were pursued by the Trump administration, I really believe that Donald Trump is one of the most dangerous people to ever hold power in this country. And, and he, you know, in, in different circumstances, you know, a guy like that in president, you know, if he had maybe a little bit more charisma, maybe if he was more like a Caesar where people would actually follow him, you know, the people that matter would follow him, like generals and things like that. Like, man, it, he, you could pull off a takeover of an America, American government. You could pull off something like, you know, denial of an election result. It's January mm-hmm. showed that that. Maybe Trump couldn't do it because he just didn't have enough charisma and didn't have enough support, but somebody could. And it, it really should be. I- wasn't kind of that true politician that could alter the, those power dynamics. Exactly. Like the, the difference between Trump and Caesar, whatever you think of Caesar, Caesar was an incredibly dynamic leader and, and happened to be you know, beloved by a huge section of the power structure of his country at the time that he took over. That's how he was able to do it. And Trump, you know, he had broad-based support in, in the American population for his policies, but nobody wanted him to usurp the Constitution. There's, there's, a, there's a big leap of, uh, of faith to go from, hey, I support your policies, but hey, yeah, you don't have to abide by our laws. You know, it, it takes quite a bit, I think, to get there. But I do think Americans should look at January 6th seriously. It's one of the outcomes. America is kind of an enigma. In my opinion, you know, getting back to the Polybia hmm. framework, because we have on paper, we have a republic. It was very much the intention of the founders to set up a system that was emulated off the Roman system, which was this balance of power, checks and balances, in a way, anti-democratic. They were specifically trying to set up a system where there would be sort of checks on radical democratic government because they saw what happened in Athens where it devolved very quickly, you know, from the golden mm-hmm. age to the collapse, it was only like 30 years. But at the same time, America for the past 200 years has been pretty quickly moving towards radical democracy to where a lot of the infrastructure that was developed at the constitutional convention is there on paper, but it doesn't function the way that the, the founders had intended it to. And, and we do have, a, we have a lot of forms of, um, extreme uh, democracy. And there's a famous book written about this. Um, I think it was a professor from Harvard called The, the Radicalism of the American Revolution. And, and that's, essentially, huh. this, that's essentially the point. It's like the founders, they 
intended to create the Roman Republic equivalent, and, the, and then very quickly it turned into this democratic experiment. And so America, the, if, you, if you fast forward, I don't think we're anywhere near this, but if you fast forward, like there's two ends possible for America. One is the Athenian end, where we descended to some sort of crazy mob rule, or you get something like January 6th, but with a charismatic person who can actually orchestrate a takeover of the power structure of this country. So, of course, everyone wants to know, wh- where are we going? And, and that's actually what we're doing with this entire documentary and podcast and series is where are we going? And no one, no one quite knows. But a, a half question, because I'm not going to ask you where are we going, but a half question to you kind of like that is, what would surprise you the most from America's future, like going forward? And what would surprise you the least? from like where we had. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. You know, taking a step back, I'm pretty optimistic on America. I think we have we have profound problems. You know, the, the, the structure of our society is changing dramatically in the face of globalization and the technological revolution. We're still dealing with uh, very serious legacy problems of race in this country. Um, but I'm still I'm still incredibly optimistic, and and I look at actually the the COVID crisis as a reason to be optimistic because even though last year was was a tough year, you know we had all, we had problems beyond COVID in this country. We also developed vaccines and distributed them to a vast percentage of our population, and now are distributing them across the world, and and that's a testament to something that America has has that many other countries don't have. You know, we have this incredibly dynamic population. We have some of the, the smartest people, uh, most enterprising people in the world. And, and, and right now that's a greater force in my opinion than some of the problems. We tend to focus on the problems, but the problems are, are far outweighed by what's good about this country. This is still, hmm. this is still in my opinion, the, the best hope for freedom in the entire world. I don't, I don't think there's ever been a country like America as far as you know, a force for good, even with all the crap we've done wrong. We've done a lot wrong. We had slavery and racism and the genocidal approach to the indigenous peoples of America. Um, and we've even done a lot wrong recently with things like the Iraq war, for example. But despite all that, we've, we've been a net positive on the world and I think we'll continue. Um, so getting back to your specific question, what would most surprise me, I think, is if America lost that. So if, if hmm. our end was to become like a static society, like... As in like we forgot that or we walked away from it purposely, like grass is greener style, or we just kind of just malaised into something different? If we, I think more like if we put in place policies that appeared good in the short term, but were somehow hmm. destructive of the dynamic nature of our economy. So if we disincentivize the, the innovation um, and, and put in place tax policies that were, were similar to maybe Europe, continental Europe, and created a more uh, created societies that maybe had a bigger welfare state and appeared better on paper, but somehow created a situation where there was less incentive and less excitement for young people to take risk and, and pursue these types of activities. I, I don't think that's going to be our ending. I'd, I'd be shocked if that was our ending. Um, yeah. Well, I certainly love your optimism. And you, uh, teaser alert for later, you've got a really big idea of 
some opportunities America can take into the future. But I want to get to those to the end because that's a really great thing to leave, end on. Because um, there's still some more challenging topics to work through. And I'd like to move into, you've written a bit about the culture wars and identity politics that we're going through right now. And this is an interesting one because you you look at politics in the past and we definitely we had we had elements of this we always will because people are going to root their identity somewhere and if you root it in politics then if someone is seeking the opposition to your political view it feels like a form of death if you're rooting your morals and your identity in this platform and so there's obviously lots of challenges with that but it seems so pervasive now this these identity and culture wars what walk me through some of your thoughts of how do we get here and like what what is the motivation how 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 did we get here yeah i, I wrote a piece a few months ago that i think the title was generational cold war because i've i've been thinking about this basically my entire adult life politics has been about you know, cultural and I, I, identity issues. That's sort of like if you pay mm-hmm. attention to the dominant media narratives on any of the stations that exist, that, that's what people are spending the vast majority of their time thinking about. And I, I started to ask myself, like, why is that? Why are we talking about politics and policy choices in terms of, you know, your viewpoint on, on what, what's acceptable for your culture or how you feel the American identity should be defined. And I came up with this insider theory that it, it's a function of a fundamental conflict between the generations. So to, in an overly simplified fashion, we are in a situation where the boomer generation is essentially in control of, of the entire power structure of America. So if you if you look at like the average age of somebody always fighting with their parents, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, if you look at the average age of somebody in Congress or Senate or even this last presidential election, right? We got people that are like almost eighty years old running against each other. These are boomers. Yeah. And it's true in corporate America too, at least in the, the large ones. You know, it's not true in the technology sector, but in the large Fortune five hundred mm-hmm. world the management structure is dominated by the boomers. And we have a situation where the social contract that was kind of laid out to that generation is in conflict with the needs of the younger generations. So my generation, I think I'm a Gen Xer, I was born in 1979, and then the, the millennials who have a bunch of needs that aren't being met because of the promises that were made to the boomer generation. And I'll give you just a few examples. So if you look at um, the federal government budget, you know, pre-COVID, post-COVID is kind of crazy because we're doing all kinds of stimulus, but pre-COVID, <laughs> it was roughly like 50%. Don't, don't look over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 50% of the, uh, the government budget was being spent on essentially promises to the boomer generation. So Social Security, Medicare. And if you look similarly at something local, like take LAPD here where I live in Los Angeles, 15% of the annual operating budget of LAPD is going to pay for pension deficits. And so it's it's one generation paying for the promises made to another. And mm-hmm. you see a, a similar dynamic at um, in the school district. 
LAUSD, it's like right around 15%. And what's scary about these numbers is they're, they're forecasted to get much more out of whack in, in the coming years, where these pension promises made to this generation of people who are retiring are going to eat up even more than they're eating up today. And so my, my theory on this is that the generations have gotten to a point where they really can't sit across from each other at a negotiation table because it's like nuclear. So like, are we really going to just tell the boomers like, hey, I know we told you you're going to have pensions and all this stuff and Social Security, but we're just going to take it away from you. Is that really what the millennials and Gen Xers are going to do? You know, it's not, it may not even be what we want to do, but it, politically it's it's definitely not going to happen. And and so we we tend to have our fights in another dynamic, you know, another realm. So we're, we're fighting with each other about identity and and culture instead of getting down and saying, what kind of hard choices do we want to make to satisfy the needs of, of all these generations? And so where my, my question on top of that is, how did we begin to root a morality in our political choices? And as an example of, actually, I don't even want to pick examples. They're all red hot. But so <laughs> like if, if this, let's just say abortion, you, this is morally wrong or this is permissible or, or whatever it may be. And I'm voting in favor of my morals because now our morals are entrenched in our platforms. And so if my platform isn't um, seen through fruition through a, through a political process, then I'm living in this place that's against my entire moral worldview. It's like everything else is evil. How, how do we take that even? I, I feel like that's exactly what you're saying. We're having these other conversations, but then that's like a wildly intensely ratcheted up. The stakes are so much higher now. How did we take that leap? Yeah. You know, that, that, that's been a topic basically my whole political life. You know, that's another one was um, same-sex marriage, you know, used to be a dividing line. That It's becoming less and less so uh, here. Abortion is still red hot, to, to use your phrase. And what's interesting about these debates, the, the reason why I think they are essentially the result of a, a nuclear standoff about other policy choices is that mm -hmm. they're framed exactly as you said, they're framed in this language of morality and morality is something that in a democracy is important to consider but meanwhile we're talking about abortion but then we're, we're like engaging in wars maybe without justification and and people aren't really using the same language uh, no the, the same <laughs> framework of, of debate to put it to put it lightly yeah to get into it you know and we're pursuing policies um you know for example like the I don't know where you stand on climate change, but at the same time we're, we were fighting in America about abortion, we were doing all kinds of stuff, all kinds of damage to this the global climate mm -hmm. with our energy policy. And so it's, it's, it's a fascinating dynamic in America, and I don't think it's been good for the country. I do think like you know, abortion in particular is something that we can't shy away from because it's, it happens quite a bit. It is a real policy issue. And, and we need to we need to be able to discuss it amongst each other and come up with a, a compromise that we believe is good for the country. Um, but we also have to 
deal with the rest of the issues on, on the same with the same level of seriousness that we're we're talking about that. Mm-hmm. So I guess going forward, let's say twenty twenty four, your best case scenario would be we're discussing this generational divide, and we're actually bringing things to the surface and saying, oh, you know what, we've got a budget issue, and that trickles into a massive generational issue. Would would that give you a sense of optimism to see that come out uh, on the surface? It would. Yeah, you know, it, it, what we're doing now is we're pursuing policies as if as if these issues don't exist. So I'll give you an example. Like, rather than confront the reality that we have underfunded pensions we are pursuing quantitative easing and the support of asset prices almost recklessly. You know, I, I listened to some of your other guests and this is the topic that's come up time and time again. Like we've, because our pensions have so many problems and we failed to address them in the political realm, they're being addressed by monetary mm-hmm. policy. And what the Fed is doing in a way with asset prices by inflating them is helping to solve the problem of the underfunded pensions. Because if asset prices are high, it makes these pension economics look better. Um, but they're backing themselves into a corner now because now you know, these things are these asset markets are becoming such a systemic issue. Because not only are they driving economic activity, so the wealth effect, the whole idea behind QE, which is to have wealth effect, but they're they're propping up this generational conflict and, and seeking to resolve it. And what's going to end up happening if the status quo continues is that we're just going to have inflation come in and just rip apart this country and resolve the like the, these unsolvable political dynamics by just inflating away the standard of living uh, for all Americans. Mm. And it's going to hurt people differently depending on where your income come from and what kind of assets you have, but it's going to be damaging to the, to the structure of our economy and our society. Is that, that I'm speechless now. Cause I'm just thinking it's just such a, when you really consider inflation being a solver of problems, you're in a bad spot. And, and so is that almost your base case scenario that we're unable to solve this through dialogue and politics. We're, we're unable to reach some sort of agreement of, you know, we made these sorts of promises to you, but we can't really meet them. Let's meet halfway. Is that your base case that we just put this off, put this off and inflation ends up just having its way and kind of solving these problems for us in obviously a very very painful manner. I, I think so. That's probably the base case. I think America, it has a chance maybe to right the ship because again, because of the, hmm. our strategic advantage in the world, which is that we have this incredibly innovative economy. And so th- there are some people out there that are optimistic about the future, despite all of these sort of like what looks to be like insolvent situations. So if you, if you look at, governments and pensions at sort of any level, they look to be fundamentally insolvent. But if you're really optimistic about technology 
you could see how there is a scenario where you get enough innovation and enough productivity growth and enough good deflation, mm -hmm. meaning that you know cost of living is going down in real terms. You get enough good deflation that you could get your way through this without having you know a massive inflation, and and that might be possible. Like we're we're at the beginnings of of, of some really incredible technologies, and I, and I think we've been benefiting as a society despite the fact that it. It really hasn't shown up in productivity, for example, the technology. But I do. I, I think it's undeniable that things are, have gotten better in certain realms of, of life because of the, the technological mm -hmm. evolutions of the last 40 years. And, and maybe it does accelerate and we get to like, you know, if you're really optimistic, there are people out there who are talking about the singularity. You know, we get to this moment in time where technology, we get runaway technology and that solves all these issues because then the price of everything goes to zero. Um, Maybe that happens. That, that's possible. It's hard to wrap your mind around that, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it is for sure. <laughs> what What are some of the technologies that you're most optimistic on? Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm not a technological expert in, in any way, but I, I really like what we're seeing in, in life sciences. I think this past year is incredible development. Um, or a, a demonstration of our incredible technological capabilities. And so I'm excited about mm -hmm. that. I think that, um, you know, in, in my field in real estate, the, the inflationary problems that we've been seeing in America for the past 10 years, for example, there looks to be some signs of hope, for example. So I, I have uh, a friend of mine who's in the modular construction business and their generation two facility is about to go online here in California. And, the, the robotic hmm. the robotic technology around construction is, is really advancing. And so, you know, they're forecasting that they might be able to drive the entire framing labor cost out of their production facility, which is a big component of construction. Now, there, it's not all good, great news because that means there's a bunch of construction workers who are going to have to, like, be re-educated. And America has done a really poor job yeah. of doing that. But I am optimistic about it because... If you if you take away that technology, it looks like we're going to have just runaway inflation in housing, and it's never going to be affordable anywhere in the world. But with these robots and, and some of this stuff, you could see how it could make a difference. So, what I, I've heard some other folks in real estate talk about how countries in Europe are renter-based economies, and it's basically just unfeasible for your average person to own. And that might be where we're headed potentially, which is a very different way for North Americans to think about real estate and housing. Do you are, are you familiar much with those markets where it's renter based, and how does that even? You know, we're just so ingrained of you leave your home, you work, you go to school, you work, you do whatever, and you're focused on getting a house at some point, and then you buy that house. And now for a lot of folks, especially I'm a millennial and then, you know, Gen Z's, I can't even imagine it must be like, oh yeah, no, that's not happening. <laughs> but I, I feel like millennials are at least stuck in that middle ground where some are getting the house and some are like, you know what, I'm going to have to move to a place super far away. I don't know where I might just have to work remote and do all this new stuff just to buy, or I'll stay here where I like and I'll just rent forever. Is that where we might be transitioning? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating uh, topic. 
it's, it's something that I've, I've thought about a lot for the last 10 years because I've been investing in, in housing in America, housing and apartments. And the, <clears throat> there was a piece actually, I think last week that Bloomberg did, which was essentially saying, hmm. making the argument that America is moving towards a renter society and furthermore, that's a good thing. And I, and I read that article and there's some pieces of it that are compelling you know, that there are, there does seem to be. A, didn't sell it for you though. It didn't sell it for me because, you know, this goes back to the, the kind of the foundational topic of your, of, of this series about America, which is in, in the American dream. You know, there's, there's something really important in my opinion about the housing market and, and what it means to be American. Hmm. And I don't believe that we've, we've reached the end of that story. You know, we, we had the housing boom where we did serious damage to the American dream, at least that particular manifestation of the American dream of you know, owning a home, because we, in the process, one of the things that people don't talk about but in, in, the, in this whole story is that in the process of inflating a housing bubble and then having a crash, we really screwed up that market. And we screwed up hmm. the, not only the end user demand, but also the supply side of it. And so if you look at charts of new home production in America, like there's a market change in, in the dynamic starting at, in 2007, where we're just, we don't produ- we haven't produced enough homes in this country for the past 10 years. And it's because wow. the destructive force of that crash, like drove a lot of people out of the industry and they didn't come back and the incentives of the, of the industry changed. And now we're feeling it. You know, now that the demand for housing has come back, there's not enough supply and we're seeing, you know, massive inflationary pressure in housing in America. But taking it back to the to your question about these other countries, like Germany's a good one. I think Germany has a very high renter percentage, like something like seventy percent. And Wow. Yeah, and hey, sorry, as as a comparison, what would the states be or oh yeah i mean ish the states is like uh home ownership ratio is like 60 something percent so we have maybe wow so we're like almost the opposite yeah we're literally like a flip from them and if you look at the chart it's it's a fascinating chart um the series goes back maybe a hundred years but look at the home ownership percentage in america kind of moves steadily up over time and then has a nice move after world war ii and then has a massive move during the bubble like it went up like 10 percentage point and then it crashed down. So it got to like the 70th percentile. Hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you go back in time, there's this famous speech from George W. Bush. I forget whether it was like a State of the Union speech or maybe it was just a regular speech, but they were celebrating this move in the chart. And he was talking hmm. about how they, we were developing, you know, the, the promise of America and the ownership society. And, and I, I've always loved that phrase, you know, ownership society, because I do think that it goes back to something about the American experiment that I think is true, which is that property ownership is a big component of the American dream. Interesting. And I don't think it's, I I don't think it's gone away at all. I think, you know, from just from what we've seen in the past year, the COVID, the COVID crisis has reawakened that particular manifestation of the American dream in, in a big way. And, and people still want to own and maybe even more so than they did in the past. And so I, I'm, I think that story is not done. It has problems because the, the housing industry is kind of broken, but I, I think it's here to, here to stay for a while. Well, and often when something is 
more challenging to attain. It becomes even more desired. And there's this feedback of, oh, it's even more limited. I really want it now. But when it's just kind of in front of you, it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll take it when it's when it's easy, when it's comfortable. Yeah. And that's an interesting connection that housing is a core part of that American dream. It's all, almost like that's our modern day manifestation of your own little piece of the frontier. It's like, this is mine. And that sound, you know, that, that just bleeds American right there. Like, this is my little slice. I can do whatever I want on it. It's, it's my own little kingdom. And that makes me wonder if this home home ownership percentage or this rate of the um, population, it's almost, this is probably going a little too far, but I'm going to say anyways, it's almost like a proxy of the American dream whether it's attainable or not, perhaps. And again, that's that's a far stretch, but that that's an interesting way to think about it, of having some kind of indicator of how healthy is this American dream, how likely is it to attain. And and I also I think you bring this up as a great segue because you've you've thought a lot about this idea of how the American dream come about, how is it rooted in our idea of the frontier. I'd love to hear more about that because this is like a very interesting way to approach this, this concept, I think. Yeah. And I, I like your point about home ownership. I do think it's, it is a, it's one of the proxies for the, for the sort of feasibility of the American dream. It's a very important one because it's, it's somewhat unique, you know, to this country. I mean, there are other countries that have achieved high, high home ownership rates, like Singapore, for example, they've had these, Oh really? Yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that. I don't know why. I just I wouldn't have guessed that one. Yeah, it's like ninety such a big city. in the nineties, and and they pursued this incredibly government run, government subsidized program that actually worked. And and I believe that American cities are going to try to replicate what Singapore did. But that that's a topic for another day. But it's worth looking into. Like they really actually figured it out. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so the frontier. I, I started getting interested in this topic last summer kind of in the, in the midst of COVID, I, I was reading a bunch of books and I read um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is nice. a crazy book. I mean, it, it doesn't make really sense. <laughs> at the beginning of the book, the guy's like on drugs and he walks into a hotel and he's trying to check into this hotel in Vegas and he's like, says all this stuff. And at the end he says, and I'm, I'm looking for the American dream. And I started thinking about that. Like, what is he talking about? So then I went back and researched. And the, the word, I believe, or the phrase came into being in like the 1920s. There was this professor out of Yale named, um, his last name was Adams, who wrote this book called The Epic of America. And he, he started pointing what in previous times had been called maybe like a manifest destiny. Or there was that famous theory from American historian about the, the frontier the importance of the frontier. And what Adams was saying in, in his book that was published in maybe 1919 or 1920 was that the frontier was this core component of the American identity. And for the most of, of history, it was a, it really was a geographic frontier. So if, even if you take yourself back to like the times when colonists were leaving continental Europe or the or the United Kingdom to come here. The, the, whole, the whole thing appeared as a frontier. And 
the frontier was a place, but it was really an idea. And the idea was this. There's a feature of capitalism, and I kind of believe actually this is a feature of all economic systems, not just capitalism. Hmm. I, I haven't studied this in depth, but I'm beginning to believe it the more I look at like what's happening in China, for example, where if you have any closed system, the inequality is sort of the natural base case outcome. So capital tends to have this sort of magnetic force to it over time. And the people who get capital tend to get more and more capital. And other writers, uh, thinkers like Piketty, you know, have been writing about this and trying to figure this out. But I, I think it's an undeniable feature of a closed system. And what? America- and you mean a closed capital system or any kind of closed system? Any kind of closed economy. It doesn't matter whether it's like what we what we envision today as a capitalist. The, there's something about the nature of power. There's something about the nature of, cap, of capital, and it causes it to become increasingly concentrated. Because you find this, you know, you find mm-hmm. in these pre-capitalist societies like Rome, for example. One of the pressures that was driving somebody like Caesar to be able to take power was after they had won their version of a world war. The the powers that the smart people and the the nobility amassed huge land holdings. Like there was no, they, they sucked it all up. It's very similar to what you see in America today where like the, these wealthy people own all the, all the assets, mm-hmm. all the financial assets. You know, their version of it was mm-hmm. land because they were kind of an agrarian pre-capitalist society. But it, it seems to be a feature. And what America represented was the chance to break away from that and actually achieve upward mobility. That's the, that's the core component. That's what the meaning of the frontier is. And it was geographic for, for most of history, but it, it's changed through time. Mm-hmm. And so like in America, for example, like I kind of think of it as, as three, there's been three eras. There was the era where there was an actual frontier, and then there was the opportunities of industrialism, and then there was the opportunities of technology. And we're kind of in the third era. And what's important about the frontier for the American identity, in my opinion, is the extent to which people believe it is a viable option for them to improve their lot. It doesn't necessarily have to actually be like statistically a good chance. Cause like if you look yeah. even through most of American, it's history, about the narrative. Yeah. It's about the narrative. Like moving West was like really dangerous and really risky and you might make it, but that's, it doesn't, that's not what matters. What matters is if you believe that you could. And so the, the dream, the dream changes through time. That was Adam's point was like, this frontier of opportunity is what's important. And and to be viable, for America to be viable, that frontier has to be real in the minds of the American people. And I think what we're going through today, part of the reason why, you know, even in the pre-COVID era, we were starting to see kind of stress in our culture and our society. And this is one of the reasons why Donald Trump got elected is that the frontier is changing and the old frontier doesn't look to be all that viable. Like the old frontier that was sold to the boomer generation, like nobody in our generation believes that. You know, even if you don't study pension math, you're not looking at like your corporate job. And mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, they're gonna they're gonna take care of me when I get older. Nobody believes that anymore, and so they're looking for a new frontier, and and it's emerging. It's there, um, but maybe it's not big enough. And, and maybe it doesn't appear viable enough. And, and that's why we're seeing all this stress in our society. Yeah. It, 
You know, it's funny, even just the simple thing of you turn onto an interstate in the U.S. and you can go east or you can go west. For some reason, turning west always feels better. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. I think I, I swear I think it has to do with that. There's something deep in our identity as Americans of this this idea of go west. Yeah. It's it's a and and there's opportunity out there. Yeah. We we don't know what it is. And I really like how you segmented it between a geographic, an industrial, and a technological. And then you, if you layer over that, the idea of a, of a narrative, because, you know, as you say, if the stats aren't really there, that's, it's not as important as the story, because if I believe in the story that I'm going to, I'm going to chase that story and I'm going to situate my life on attaining the, the fairy tale ending of that story. And so I wonder, will, will we keep that story? Will we capitalize on the story? Will our story change? This idea of the frontier, say, in technology. And, and that also really leads into your idea, which we teed up earlier, <laughs> this big idea you have, of a really powerful opportunity America has. And even you speaking right now, it, it, it really opens it up to me of, yeah, we've got this global idea of a frontier because that's why people want Ameri- that, that's why people want to immigrate to America. It's, it's that same idea. It's not applicable just to Americans. It's a global story of, as you say, if there's a closed economic or capital or any kind of system, people are going to want to get out of that and they're going to want to move up. It's just natural. And we've sort of been a light. We've been like spreading this story for decades, centuries now. And so maybe, you know, I'll pass it to you. Walk us through a bit of your idea of how could we leverage this potentially really wonderful story? Yeah, I, th- I think that one of the reasons I'm optimistic about the, the potential for America is that I think we have, we have some really important strategic advantages. Like we, we tend to gloss over these things here in America because we're, we live here and we're, we're like overwhelmed by the privilege of being an American. Yeah. You know, and also I think we focus a lot on the the challenges these days too. You know, I I think it's, it's good news that we, we've got a lot of, (laughs) we've got, we've got a shaky past, but everyone has a shaky past, but we've got some great things too. I think that's a fabulous point. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Like I think, one of the, the thoughts that's been in my head for years is that if you look at the world, if you look at world history and you look at America in the, in the context of, of all of the, the empires that have existed or the, the quasi-empires, mm-hmm. you know, countries that have attempted to take control over regions and things like that, America is, is actually positioned you know, really high on the list in terms of a good guy. A good player. You know, if you were to ask the, the, the little thought experiment that I did in my head the other day was like, if you were to go and ask, like take a poll of every country that's ever been conquered and say, who would you rather have conquer you? And you list out multiple choice and you put, you know, America, the Soviet Union, Genghis Khan, Rome, like America would poll incredible. Like everyone would want, if you had to lose a war, you'd want to lose it to America because we have been 
you know, despite our failings, I, I'm not trying to undermine that. We have been a very magnanimous victor and a very kind of magnanimous superpower. You know, like the, there's this moment in time, actually, like 1945 to 1950, where America possessed the technological capabilities for global domination and chose not to do it. That's incredible. I don't think Americans understand that. You know, we, we were the superpower with production capabilities that were through the roof and we had nuclear technology. And there were people, high up people, for example, in the American military who were like, what are we doing? Like Patton. Patton famously got in trouble a couple of times in press conferences for essentially mm-hmm. suggesting like, hey, why are we letting these empires like the Soviet Union take over Eastern Europe? They aren't, they're just as bad as the Nazis. And you know what? He kind of had a point. Um, but anyways, getting back to your, getting back to your question, um, America has advantages, and, and I think there's two of them. One is that we actually are a place where freedom is real. And so, uh, the perfect example, like if, if Americans want to just like wake up and remember why America is special, look what's happening in cryptocurrency right now. So China just decides to ban cryptocurrency mining. And it was like 65% of the mining capacity of, of Bitcoin, for example, was in China. And they just, they got scared and they're banning it. And it's it's essentially going to become illegal in China before too long to even hold crypto. Because countries like that, authoritarian regimes, they can't tolerate threats to their power in any way, shape or form. And, and here in America, like... You can still own crypto. You can still mine for crypto. We haven't moved against it like like China has. And, and that says something. It says something about what it means to be an American, what freedom actually means, and, and why you know, that, why it's such an incredibly important strategic advantage. Um, the other one is immigration. And, and this, in my opinion, is like an absolute superpower because we are out, we're in a world where because of many dynamics – the sort of natural population growth rate is declining across the globe. And in 2020, mm-hmm. for example, you know, you've had a couple of countries, like I just read yesterday that Germany actually had a population decline for the first time in, in a long time in 2020 because their natural birth rate is so low and they didn't have any enough immigrants to overcome the, the natural decline of their domestic population where normally they would. Huh. Because of COVID, they didn't, they didn't have any immigrants. And I, I did a little. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I did a research. Uh, I did an article on this recently in, in my newsletter, and I, I was looking at the data and like, it's if you were to take the domestic population of basically every world power alone and you excluded immigration, it's all declining. We all look like Japan or Russia, and we all look at a future where essentially we're going to have a whole bunch of these boomers that are retired and getting these pensions and not enough workers. But America has this crazy advantage. Again, we have this crazy advantage that people don't want to, don't want to celebrate or don't want to take advantage of. And, and that's people actually want to live here. So you add immigration into it and America population growth still looks okay. We're still, we're still able to add to our population and, and the forecasts, you know, without it, it's it's dire. But with it, we're actually going to be better off. We're going to be better than every country on the planet. And China's scared of this already. China moved recently to, to allow for three children because they don't mm-hmm. have what we have. Nobody, not nobody, very few people in the world want to relocate to China. 
they will relocate to America. And I think that one of the many things wrong with the Trump administration was his sort of appeal to the nativistic impulses that are existing in our culture. And they've always existed. Even at times when we've been really open to the world, there's always been this sort of nativistic attitude, but it, it's, it's, it's been a minority. And Trump appealed to that and, and did a little damage to our reputation, but not enough because even, even during the Trump administration, you saw you know, rising numbers of international students and rising numbers of people trying to lo- relocate here you know, that we would consider to be refugees, for example. So people, mm-hmm. still, people still want to come here. And I think that America has this really incredible opportunity to essentially strategically, I guess, weaponize immigration. Like we could, we could really make it easy. We could really make it easy for people to come here, and and uh, I'll give you two examples of ones that are in my mind like absolute no brainers. Yeah, it's students, right? So right now there's about a million foreign born students in America at any one time. By the way, thirty percent of those people come from China, and uh, we only we only let in like, and when I say let in, I mean we. we allow for visas for maybe half of them upon graduation and the other half like that's so crazy it's crazy yeah and we're talking about like elite american educational institutions right um yeah it it makes absolutely no sense in my my view that should be there should be a very clear on-ramp pathway to citizenship for anyone who's educated in american institution Um, and then secondly there's this uh visa category uh, around skilled workers i think it's called h1b and uh, this is actually a fascinating topic if you're interested. Like you can uh, occasionally the titans of the technology world go and testify before Congress about this particular category of visas because essentially it's like it was set up to attract high-skilled workers where we had shortages, so technology and medicine and things like that. And uh, companies like Microsoft go and they say, we will hire these people, we'll pay them great salaries, like one, $200,000 a year. These people aren't going to be like burdens on the American state. Uh, please offer, offer more visas. Um, and they do increase it sometimes, Congress does, depending on the mood over the years, but not near enough. And so what Bill Gates said in his most, uh, I guess it's not his most recent, I think it was a couple of testimonies before, he said what Microsoft did was they found jurisdictions that were like America, like Ireland, for example, that were somewhat appealing to people hmm. from from China or from Southeast Asia or from India that had some of the characteristics of America, like Ireland, and they opened facilities there and they they got their visas and they moved their workers there, and and that's such a missed opportunity for America. Like we, get, we these people are clearly going to be contributing members to our society and they're going to be so instantly. They're going to be hired by Microsoft and Google and Apple. It's it's a really kind of a travesty, um, in my opinion. So I, I think that enlightened thinking around immigration could really, really change things in America uh, strategically. Yeah, I I really love this, and it's funny when you brought this to my attention. <clears throat> I've I've thought about immigration, but I've never thought about it as this almost geopolitical tool, and it almost sounds like it's dehumanizing, but I I don't think it is at all. It's just the facts that we are educating very bright students and then we're sending half back to a lot of our geopolitical rivals. 
And it's, it's crazy. Why do we not bring them in? Like, as an example, so I grew up in Georgia, lived in Montana, Alaska, and then I, about eight, ten years ago, um, I transferred universities to Canada, so I graduated here, and I've been here since. Um, and it's wild. Like, it really feels like, at least where I am on the West Coast, it feels like what I imagine America used to be, where it's more common that I'm hanging out with a group of friends and the minority is Canadians. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's the most common thing that the majority of the group are all immigrants, either from North America or Europe or Asia. Uh, there's not a lot of Latinos here. <laughs> yeah. Mexican food is not that great, but it's crazy that it's it's so it's such an easy thing, but then I think about okay, well, what would take us to get there? Because yeah, I agree with you. This is a great idea. It seems like it's caught up in this culture war. Immigration has become part of this moral culture war that is potentially just a proxy for the generational battle between pensions and boomers and millennials and and Gen Z, Gen X. Yeah. And you know we wouldn't we wouldn't be here talking about this stuff if solutions were handed to us on a silver platter and it was just oh yeah we'll just vote this in but you know I don't even know if there's an answer for this but how do we take steps to make this happen and the standard is like well yeah let's just vote in people who are going to make it happen but it really feels like there's gridlock and all that is there is there a way to change the narrative and to see immigrants not as someone who's going to take something from us, but that we're giving to them and they're giving to us. More of a mutual relationship. How do we change that story? Yeah, it's a really important question, Bradford. It's like, it may be the most important question in America today because it is such an important uh, factor in the future success of this country. And I, I think what's been happening to your point about this has been sort of usurped by the, the culture wars. What's been happening is that immigrants, the immigration question has been impacted by sort of a campaign of disinformation to the American people where the threat, the real threat, which is the globalization of the economy and, and what that means for the industrial base in America, uh, it's been cast along this, the same thing. Like immigration is being considered as, as that. And it's, it has nothing to do with it, right? Like immigrants coming to America has nothing to do with Chinese producing cheap goods in their, in their manufacturing facilities. But they've been kind of lumped together mm-hmm. as the same general threat of foreigners taking American jobs. And the, the people who have been waging this nativistic campaign have done a really good job of confusing Americans. And I, I think we do... You know, what, what could move us forward? I think we need to start talking about it. I think we need to continue to try to provide statistics that point in the other direction. Like, for example, there's people in the, in the venture capital community who are attempting to do this by just showing, like, the undeniable statistics about companies founded by immigrant founders and the number of jobs that they create in this country. I mean, it's pretty staggering. I don't have any of the numbers offhand, but, like, something like... 25 or 30 percent of every venture capital funded company in america is founded by an immigrant that's crazy wow yes yeah it's like man we should pour 
poured gasoline on that fire because that that's that yeah. creature right there. Well, not everyone's. Yeah, some people are just more hungry, you know. And if if you come from somewhere and you're after that story, that dream that we talked about, and you get here, and you, you know, you got into the university, and then you got that visa that like half your classmates didn't. You're hungry, you know. You've got like fire inside you, and so. Anyways, that's that. That's what that stat says to me. Is like, let's let these hungry people in. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I to- totally agree. Like that. That's how the new frontier. You know, taking it back to this idea of the American frontier. That's how we create a viable frontier. Is like we we create an economic environment, a geopolitical environment where America just attracts the best and brightest. Um, and not just that, we, we should, this shouldn't be like some elitist grab, it only attracting wealthy people or smart people. You know, there, there are policies in place already. There was this, this one that was around for a while. I think it's actually ending where you could like invest money in America and get a visa that way. Maybe, maybe we should continue policies like that. We definitely need to open it up to the students and the high skilled workers. And we should be open in general. I, I don't think we should be afraid of immigration in this country. This is what made the country. And this is what will give us an advantage over all these other countries who are going to be facing a situation where they have declining populations. And by the way, they have the same pension problems that we do because they they sold their boomer generation the same story. And they voted in some cases, even more extreme forms of this welfare, this like retirement age welfare programs. They vote in other countries. It's, it's probably even worse. I haven't studied the underfunded pensions in Europe, for example, but I got to imagine it's worse. Than yeah. Here. Well, and also the glaring contradiction of if, if you're anti-immigration and you're not First Nations or Native American, it's like, well, <laughs> sorry to break it to you, but you're an immigrant. Yeah. <laughs> you've just been here a little longer is all. That, that's right. Yeah. Like, it's a core component of the American identity and the being open to immigration. And we definitely shouldn't turn away from it. It's, it's, it, that would be mm-hmm. a really big strategic mistake for this country. And, and we, we'd end up in a much quicker demise. You know, if Polybius is right yep. and our demise is inevitable, cutting off immigration will make that happen much faster. <laughs> awesome. Well, Nick, we're, uh, we're getting close to time, so we're going to wrap it up. Um, I've certainly learned a lot. I hope folks listening have too. And we've mentioned some of the writings you do. Maybe tell us a little a little bit about where folks can find your newsletter, Profit, and then also um, if you're on social media or anything and where folks can find some of your day-to-day stuff, if so. Yeah, thank you so much, Bradford. I'm, I'm honored to be here. This was a super fun conversation. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, I look forward to doing it again sometime. Um, you can find me. Uh, I'm not very active on Twitter, but I, I am on there, and my handle is at Nick Hilaris. And then I have a website, um, NickHilaris.com, where you can subscribe uh, to the newsletter uh, for free. So if you're interested in uh, learning more uh, about what I'm thinking about and, and following it, please uh, subscribe. It'd be honored to have you. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Nick. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Bradford. Listening to other YouTube channels, I hear a lot of the smashing the like button. I'd like to suggest gently click it. It's nicer on your computer and probably longevity for your technology anyway. So likely click that subscribe button, like, rate, review. It is the best way to help us reach more audience, more people. 
and that way we can keep producing content every week. Make sure to drop a comment below who you'd like us to interview next, and we look forward to seeing you next week.